friends, and welcome to another episode of In With The Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. Today is a special Q&A episode, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. Dr. Brian, how are you doing? What's up, everyone? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited for the questions. We have some good and, I think, interesting ones today, so excited to dive into these, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. And and Brian, these uh, I, I think are fun episodes. Normally, uh, we, we kind of take one topic or, or passage of scripture or idea and kind of dive into it, but these are a little bit more rapid fire. We've got three different questions we're going to consider today. And, uh, and Brian, we're going to start out. I'm going to put it on the tee for you. Here's the first question that we're going to tackle today. What does the Old Testament teach about what happens to people when they die? So what happens to people after death in the Old Testament? So that's a good question that was sent in to us. And uh, I'm going to preface my answer by saying there are several different ways you could answer this question based on what was being asked or what the intention behind it. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm going to answer it in the way that came most naturally to me, what I think the question was asking. Uh, Listener, if this was your question and I'm not answering what you were going for, please just write back in. Happy to give you a fuller answer. So, Tim, when I when I read this question, I thought they were asking, okay, so what is the afterlife look like in the Old Testament? And yeah. this is an important question because we have something in the Bible and in theology and in Christianity called progressive revelation, right? This is the idea that chapter one, verse one we don't have a fully fledged theological outlook on many things. The Bible will develop things over the course of its length. When we come to views of the afterlife, our view of the afterlife is something that comes fairly late in the development of the biblical story. That is, we have hints, we have ideas about it in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about. But when we're talking about heaven, when we're talking about hell, when we're talking about like a fully fledged and fully formed view of the afterlife, that is something that is very late in the biblical game um, that I think we don't get to the new Testament and potentially even revelation to get it fully consummated and fully orbed in the old Testament. Then we don't have the terms heaven or hell, right? That's too far forward. What we do have is the Hebrew term and idea Sheol. So Sheol is Hebrew in Greek. It'll be translated as Hades an important, but a side note, Hades and hell are two different words in Greek. They don't mean the same thing. Um, Sheol is a word that we don't really know its root. There are two plausible origins for it. One, and probably the better way, uh, is it's a word that means unland or no land. It's the idea of a place of unreality, of unmaking, right? Death, life is not present there. So that's probably what the word means. It also potentially could be related to the verb to ask or to inquire. If that's where it comes from, the idea might be necromancy because we know even in the biblical story and most certainly in ancient Near Eastern cultures, you had necromancers that would try to get questions, right, answered from the afterlife. So that's possible, but that's probably an unlikely route. So this is probably a place of unexistence. Um, the meaning of Sheol in the Bible moves from the idea of the grave to death itself to the underworld. As the underworld, uh, the Old Testament talks about this place 
in some ways similar to the other cultures of the ancient Near East, but in a much more pulled back terms. So as the Old Testament talks about death, it doesn't really give us a full view of what's happening there. It just gives us a few ideas. And, and so I'm looking down at my notes because I want to reference these for you, listeners, so you can go check them out. What does the Bible say about Sheol? Well, first, it locates it physically in the world as something underneath the surface of the earth. It is literally the underworld. We're not terribly creative when we name things, right? Uh, as an example <laughs> of this, you can see Ezekiel 31.15, 31.17, or Psalm 86.13, just to name a few. I want us all to remember that they did think that the grave, that the underworld was literally under the earth. This adds some interesting dimensions, Tim, right, to some stories. When you have uh, the rebellions in the book of Numbers and the ground opens up to swallow, mm -hmm. right, those that have risen up against Moses, yeah. that's a terrifying, uh, that takes on a much more terrifying guise if you go, hey, to their mindset and their cosmology and how everything's put together, you could say the underworld just came up to claim them, right? They went down alive to Sheol. Uh, it came and claimed them. So I think locating that in our minds does actually help and give us some insight into some stories. Um, we do see that Sheol is described as a holding place for both the good and the wicked. And that is an interesting part of the Old Testament and why I've said a couple times it's yeah. not fully formed. You have... Uh, Jacob talking about, his, I will see my son in Sheol. You have David saying, mourning for his son when he dies, saying, I'm going to see him in Sheol. But you also have evidence that the wicked are sent there as well. Mm -hmm. In this way, you could argue it seems to be a holding place for all those who have died. We aren't Catholic, but let's make the observation. The Catholic conception of purgatory, at least in part, is rooted in this Old Testament concept. How well-rooted, that's another discussion. But realize they have not invented this out of nothing. It is based in this Old Testament context. We see that the wicked in Psalm 31.17 go to Sheol, as well as the righteous. I already mentioned Jacob and David, but also Ezekiel 32.21 says that. Um, Sheol can go as a byword of death, 1 Kings 2.6. It's described physically as a place of gloom, Ecclesiastes 9.10, decay, Isaiah 14.11, and a place from which you don't come back, right? That's Job 7, 6. Uh, once you go there, you are stuck there. However, Amos 9, 2 says God is still in control. And Psalm 49, 15, this tantalizing little clue, God has the power to save from there. Now, the Old Testament ends right in around the 4th century B.C., and after that, the idea and of the afterlife continued to develop within Judaism. So in Second Temple Judaism and the intertestamental period, we can look at the books of Maccabees, we can look at uh, like First Enoch, for example, and there begins to be some development of, you know what, maybe there's two places people go. The righteous go to one place, the wicked go somewhere else. Um, being gathered to the bosom of your forefathers, maybe like Abram's bosom. Maybe that's a place where the good people go, right? Good, maybe in air quotes, uh, when they die, as opposed to the wicked. We can see that this has taken place, by the way, even within the biblical text. In the, well, I guess, is it a parable? I don't know. That's another <laughs> argument. But the story of Lazarus and the rich man, parable or not, does draw on this idea that the places of the dead are somehow connected. You can see between Abram's bosom and uh, Hades. And yet they are also distinct. 
So we see even there within Judaism, a development of two distinct destinations. Eventually this goes kind of full formed within Christian New Testament theology, but that's where the Old Testament somewhat ends. There is a place where all the dead go, just recapping the question. Um, it's called Sheol. God still has power over there, but it is the grave. And the fate of those that go there is somewhat nebulous within the Old Testament itself. So good question. I hope I answered it and didn't talk around what you were going for, uh, listener. But that's what I have for that. Uh, Tim, I know I was answering that, but anything that I missed, anything that I should clarify um, before I throw another question over to you? Yeah, no, you covered it really well. And and that's something that at times makes us uncomfortable to say, well, the Old Testament doesn't fully flesh out uh, what's going on in Sheol. Uh, but that's what we're left with in the Old Testament. And then, of course, as you said, the New Testament does give us more detail. Uh, but when I think mm -hmm. of Sheol, I, I often think, Brian, of some of the phrases that occur when people die. For instance, Abraham uh, went to rest or uh, say, mm. you mentioned uh, necromancy, right? Whenever uh, Samuel is called back from the grave, he asks, why have you disturbed my rest? And so yep. there is a sense that for the righteous in Sheol, there is rest. Uh, whereas uh, it's not exactly clear uh, the final destiny of the wicked. Now think of Ecclesiastes, you think of, you know, kind of the, 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 just the peril of thought of, well, if the righteous and the unrighteous have the same destiny, then what is the meaning of it all? Uh, and I think mm -hmm. that's at least part of what drove some of this development. Uh, and as, as you know, uh, Brian, scholars go bananas trying to figure out, well, when did it develop? How did it develop? And oh, gosh. Some of yeah. those answers so are clear, books. some not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but Sheol is, again, I think a place within God's control, and it's a place where the, the righteous can rest. Uh, that their final destiny is in God's hands. Yeah, good points. And I think listeners, uh, if you kind of go like, well, why don't we have a clearer answer? Mm -hmm. Two things I might say is first, we have made it clear. I think it's very important to both of us. The Old Testament is part of God's word, but it's not the whole story either, mm -hmm. right? The whole counsel mm -hmm. of God does include the New Testament. So even us OT guys that love that would go, but we need more to add to it. Mm -hmm. And also... The things that are revealed, right, belong to us, but the secret things belong to the Lord, as Deuteronomy says. Yes. Some things, I think, are not revealed to us because it's not important for us to be able to live out God's purpose for our lives. We may want to know some things, but that doesn't mean all answers are always there. So uh, I always view these as invitations to study more and to trust, and so I hope you can find comfort in that as well. Yeah. So Tim, I'm going to throw our second question over to you. And it's All a right. it's a question that you mentioned a lot of scholars have spilled ink on Sheol. <laughs> Shall we say there are some very strong opinions on this next question, which we got to see the first time we met each other firsthand, yes. um, which I'll tell in just a quick second. But um, the question is asking, I've heard the angel of the Lord is like a pre-incarnate Jesus in the Old Testament. So listeners, if you've heard that view before, Old Testament scholars tend to have very strong opinions, yes or no, on this. And we were unfortunately, Dr. Tim and I, in a class where a student came up and voiced his view, not knowing that the teacher had a very strong opposite view. 
It was a very <laughs> awkward 15 minutes in class uh, during the feedback section. <laughs> but um, we're going to try and make it less awkward, less difficult. We're going to try to bring light, not heat here. So, Dr. Tim, can you walk us in on the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? Yeah. So, is the angel of the Lord Jesus? Uh, and just to kind of situate the question a little bit, you know, Brian, a popular way of approaching the Old Testament, especially in the last probably 20 to 30 years, but even before that, is trying to to understand what was Jesus doing during the Old Testament period. And of course, when we say the name Jesus, that's being anachronistic, right? When, when we speak of Jesus, we're really speaking of the pre-incarnate Logos or, uh, you know, the second person of the Trinity before he took on human flesh. Uh, but in right. any case, Jesus will work for shorthand. What was Jesus doing? And a lot of times people will look at the Old Testament and say, oh, here are the prophecies of Jesus or, oh, there's these shadows of Jesus. Uh, but was Jesus himself actually at work in the Old Testament? And so some people will say yes. And they'll say the prime example of that is the angel of Yahweh. And so here's, I, I want to give them their, their defense. Why would someone be able to say yes? And, and here's why. The first thing is uh, we need to recognize the word angel, malach in Hebrew, it is not a word uh, that has connotations of creature as we normally think of it. Uh, immediately we hear angel and we might have a vision of a fiery being or wings or, you know, maybe a diaper and a harp if we're really, you know, out there. But that's that's <laughs> not what the Bible talks about when it refers to an angel. The word angel just simply right. means messenger. And of course, those later associations have come into it, but that's not what the word means. So we can't just say, oh, well, angel immediately means created, which means it can't be Jesus. That's not true. It means messenger, at which point we could even translate the phrase the messenger of Yahweh. Um, so that's just kind of a, a, a prerequisite to the conversation. But the second thing is, as we look to the angel of Yahweh, we see a lot of very interesting behaviors. Uh, the angel of Yahweh does things, and this is what's what's so important to think about, the angel of Yahweh does things that no other angels are allowed to do. So here's a, a for instance, very mysterious passage, interesting passage, passage in Judges 13. And uh, Judges 13, you have Manoah, who is Samson's father, and then Manoah's wife, who's unnamed in the text. And uh, there's this man slash angel being who comes. And at, at first, Manoah's wife sees him. And then she goes and tells Manoah about this encounter. Later, the angel comes and Manoah sees the angel. He's identified as the angel of the Lord by the text itself. Uh, and, and then as the, the story progresses, Manoah actually offers a sacrifice to the angel, um, and the angel seems to accept the sacrifice. Uh, now, as we think about that, angels, even as messengers of God, it, it seems very odd that they would accept sacrifice. Why? Because we have instances, for instance, in uh, the end of Revelation, where the angel says to John, I'm, a, I'm just a fellow servant. Don't bow down and worship me. Well, the angel received worship. People bowed down and worshiped him. People offered him sacrifices. And rather than pointing to God and saying, only worship him, he seems to accept them. Um, also, and this is very interesting as well, uh, the angel speaks for Yahweh in the first person. And there are numerous examples of that. In fact, uh, these examples are so common that sometimes we don't even associate them with the angel of Yahweh. 
For instance, in Exodus 3, the angel of Yahweh speaks to Moses from the burning bush. And the angel says, take your sandals off for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Uh, Same thing in Genesis 22. The angel of Yahweh speaks from heaven and he says, don't kill your son, Abraham. Uh, And we so closely associate the angel's words that it says the angel spoke, but the angel speaks as Yahweh. Um, so those those are things that might be explainable if we think, okay, yes, a messenger can speak for the person they're representing in the first person in the same way that, say, a herald might speak for a king and says, the king says thus and thus. Uh, but it, it seems particularly acute when it comes to the angel of the Lord. And then the other interesting detail here, which could be, you know, kind of evidence in the case that it could be Jesus, is the idea that the angel of Yahweh is never named in the Old Testament. Now, you might say, okay, well, wait a second. We only have the name of two different angels in scripture, Michael and Gabriel, right? And you have both of those, uh, Michael and Gabriel, in both Testaments. But as we think about Michael and Gabriel, we say, okay, well, almost no angels are named. So why is that a big deal? And here's why it's a big deal. Because there are arguably two different passages in Genesis 32 where Jacob wrestles an angel and asks him his name. The angel refuses to give it to him. The word, by the way, angel is not used in that passage, so there's some debate there. But then also in the passage I mentioned in Judges 13, Manoah specifically asks the angel of the Lord his name. And here's what the angel says. He says, why do you ask my name? It is too wonderful for you. In other words, he doesn't say, oh, well, my name is Michael and I'm an archangel or my name is Gabriel and I stand in the presence of the Lord. He literally says to Manoah, you would not be able to comprehend my name. And then we read in Genesis 48, and this is such an interesting passage, Brian, 48, 16, where as Jacob is recounting his journeys, he actually says of God that God has delivered him the angel who has brought him through all of his trials and travails. So there's arguably an identification of the angel of Yahweh with Yahweh. So there is the evidence for. Now let's just talk briefly about the evidence against, and it's pretty simple. The evidence against is, well, guess what? There are different passages that clearly differentiate between the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh himself. So Zechariah 3, the angel of Yahweh says to Hasatan or Satan, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Uh, so he invokes the name of Yahweh. Same thing in First Chronicles. Uh, there's an instance of the angel of the Lord holding out his sword over Jerusalem and Yahweh speaks to him from heaven and he says, hold back your sword. So uh, as we think about this textually, there's a lot of different things going on, but clearly the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament is a herald of God. Uh, he may not be create a created being based just simply on the language, and he does some things that no other angels do. Uh, by the way, the, the idea of Jesus being the angel of Yahweh was something many of the early church fathers held. Uh, so there's some at least precedent in Christian history. But I think one thing that's so important, wherever we might land on this question, uh, is to remember we're not talking about uh, a pre-incarnate incarnation. Uh, And I'll explain that. Mm -hmm. We have to preserve the incarnation. Jesus became a man in a very different way than, say, angels appeared as men in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus took on humanity. That's why, by the way, he didn't come as a fully grown adult. He came as a baby in the womb. 
Why? Because he assumed humanity fully in the incarnation. Uh, so is Jesus the angel of Yahweh? Uh, it depends on what day, I, I, uh, what side of the bed I wake up on, whether I say yes or no. Uh, I think it's very possible. There are very strong reasons to believe the answer is yes. Can we be dogmatic about it? I don't think so, but but there are the two sides to that case. Yeah, that's that's well put. Um, this is something that I don't think, A, theologically is significant enough to be dogmatic about it, but mm -hmm. uh, B, the, the evidence, I think we want it to be always one or the other, right? It's always mm -hmm. just an angel or it's always pre-incarnate Christ. Um, but I don't think, I, I'm with you, Tim, I don't think we can get there. There's just too many things on both sides here where you go, yeah. no, that seems to be beyond just an angel. But then you have the clear examples in Zechariah uh, and right. Chronicles where it's distinct from Yahweh. So, uh, yeah, really well put. Uh, the As you were talking, though, I thought it was interesting when the angel talks to Manoah and says, why do you ask my name? My name's mm -hmm. too glorious for you. He doesn't mm -hmm. add the my name is too glorious for you, but he back in the Jacob story also mm -hmm. says, why do you ask my name? Mm -hmm. um yeah so anyway that just came to mind it's an interesting connection um, yeah i've always read that as because you should already know my name uh, mm. at least in the jacob story interesting anyway, but yeah. uh good points thank you for walking us in on that appreciate it yeah absolutely so that was a great non-answer wasn't it brian um <laughs> so time for our last question uh brian as, as we think about, we already mentioned the book of Judges, it's, it's one of the most uh, wild, wild west, if you will, of the books in the Bible. Uh, a lot of crazy things going on, but especially for our listeners who have read through the book and come to the end, the last three chapters, chapters 19 through 21, uh, mm -hmm. are, are really kind of disorienting. Uh, it, it's kind of like you look at it and you think, how can this be in the Bible? Should I even let my kids read this story kind of thing? So Brian, troubling here, passages, yeah. it's a troubling passage. What is going on at the end of the book of Judges in Judges 19 through 21? Yeah, so this is a good question. And I, there are difficult passages of scripture, and I don't think we do ourselves any favors by avoiding them. Right. And the, so this is a, a good passage. So listeners, if you've never really gone through the book of Judges before, you are probably still familiar with the bulk of the book, right? Which is takes up the story of the judges. We're not creative in naming things, right? These are the stories of the mostly but not entirely men that God calls to redeem and save his people. Um, and it ends, or at least we usually think it ends with the story of Samson which that's a whole question in of itself. What do you do with Samson? But it is interesting to note the story of Samson ends in chapter 16. We still have five more chapters in the book. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Tim, just like I think most people assume the plagues are the entire book of Exodus. And then you read it and you're like, oh gosh, mm. I'm still in like the first third of the book and we're out of Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what's the rest of this book about? Um, mm. I, I think most, uh, unless we've, sat down and read it recently, we assume the book of Judges ends with Samson, but it keeps going on. Um, and chapters 19 through 21 take up a very difficult passage uh, of a Levite. So already we're dealing with like the priests. He takes a prostitute. He goes to a town of the tribe of Benjamin. And um, I mean, I don't know if we need a trigger warning for it, but let's just say some really horrible and messed up things happen to 
that prostitute um, yeah. and she is killed. He chops up her body, sends it throughout the land. Civil war takes place. The tribe of Benjamin is almost destroyed until they kidnap wives. And that's where the book ends. And mm -hmm. it's a really like, I don't know. Every time you read through it, you kind of get whiplash. You're like, why, why is this even here? What is this doing? So I want to walk in a little bit on some of the things that we're supposed to pick up. So after the story of Samson, we pick up the uh, two stories. So the story of the Benjamite um, is only one of the last two stories in the book of Judges. The other one is a difficulty between the tribes of Micah and Dan. And this sets the scene. These last chapters of the book of Judges are trying to show that even if we get rid of all external enemies, internally, this is not a united nation. These are tribes that are acting independently and sometimes against one another, even though they are to be a kingdom of priests, a royal nation, right? A holy nation. They are supposed to be serving after God. That is not taking place. The key phrase of the book, which continues to appear through the cycles of the judges and here, is that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that phrase actually appears at both the beginning and end of Judges 19 through 21, because that's the point. We are still in a lawless, I use the term Wild West, Tim, mm -hmm. a little more unsavory, but yes, we are in a lawless time of Israelite history. And that's the point, because where are we leading up to? Well, the beginning of the monarchy here pretty soon. Now, these chapters are pointing out something very important that the sin of the Israelites is not just that they walk away from God. It's trying to be a bit more explicit. They have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you read through chapter 19, especially, you will see very quickly, even not knowing Hebrew, just read the story. You'll go like, oh, this sounds like what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah when some strangers came and visited a city and the inhabitants of that city gathered around the house and right? They wanted to violate those visitors. The same thing takes place. And guess what? That's not just a surface similarity. The exact same phrasing, the exact same wording. Uh, I, I have, I won't go into all the details here. I put them in the notes, Tim, but uh, mm -hmm. to keep it more high level, um, the same phrases, the same words are being used. You and I, as readers of the Old Testament to this point are supposed to hit this and go, oh my gosh, the tribe of Benjamin is committing the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how bad things now are in the holy people, right? In the nation of Israel, they have sunk down to the lowest of the low of the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. That phrase, there is no king. Everyone did was right in their own eyes is trying to push us to go. This is not tenable. We mm -hmm. cannot just continue to have the judges because we are not making forward progress. We are still destitute in our sin. Coming out of this uh, this uh, killing of the prostitute, among other things, um, civil war breaks out, and Israel has to rise up against the tribe of Benjamin. They attempt to fight against Benjamin several times, are defeated. Something interesting in chapter 20 is that the tribe of Judah is the first tribe to fight them. After several battles, uh, the tribe of Benjamin is only almost wiped out. All of Israel says, we're not going to give them wives. We're going to just let them die out. But the tribe of Benjamin is smart, and they go and they kidnap women worshiping God at Shiloh. Mm. Awesome. Well done, guys. <laughs> you preserve your bloodline, but right, even that is somewhat horrible. And then the book ends with that line. There was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
Now, Tim, I'm going to have a little bit of a speculative point, but I do think it's setting these things up. I think the clear message is, look, Israel has sunk down to the lowest of the low. We need to change. I also think this is setting up in the back of your readers' minds. If you see someone come from Benjamin, you should probably have second thoughts about them. Because we're about to enter the monarchy. But King David is not the first king, is he? The first king is King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. I think there is a, uh, right, I don't think Judges is written during the time. I think it's written retrospectively as a historian. And so I think there is a shading here that you're supposed to distrust Benjamin or the tribe, rather, when it comes onto the national scene. Much like the next book, Ruth, is going to make you go, no, look, a Davidic king, a Judah king, right? Judah is the first one that fights the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, a king from Judah is probably from much better stock than the tribe of Benjamin. So I don't know if you want to use the term propaganda or whatnot, but I do think this is an intentional kind of foreshadowing of, yes, we need a king. That's going to help. But if a king comes from Benjamin, that's probably also not going to be what we want. So I think the clear point is Israel sunk low. I think a secondary point is that this is a warning against the Benjamite king, King Saul. But that's that is a little bit speculative. Tim, what do you do with these last couple chapters? Does anything else I haven't mentioned jump out to you? Yeah, just just kind of rising to a thirty thousand foot level for a second. Um, even as there are gruesome things that are described here, uh, there's a there's a comfort to me in in reading this, and it's not the comfort of the events that happened. But it's the comfort knowing that those events that happened were recorded and preserved. Um, and, and the reason for that is, as we think about the Bible, we, we go back to that principle, and we've talked about this before, Brian, that not everything that's described in the Bible is prescribed, or uh, not everything that is written down is written down approvingly, but, but rather, right. it, it's as though God is looking at the, the sin that's committed. And, and he wants us so badly to remember it, to know what we're capable of when we try to live life apart from him, or really to put a finer point on it, when we try to sort of add him as a part of our lives, right? The whole Micah and Dan episode, when we try to kind of put him on the side, but don't really want to follow him as our king. Uh, he preserves this uh, for us so that we can see it as a warning uh, and that it will ultimately move us uh, to worship him, to follow him, and uh, to to revere him as God. Uh, and, and so to me, Brian, as I read uh, stories like this, the comfort is, is that the Bible does not uh, seek to put a face, a fake mask on humanity. Uh, God sees all of the worst things that happen in this world. Uh, and, and for us as humans, a lot of times what we choose to do is just ignore it. You know, hey, this terrible, tragic thing happens. Well, that thing happens all the time. It's a broken world. We've got all of these ways to kind of downplay it or ignore it. Whereas God is looking at it saying, I cannot ignore this. That literally, God can't help but see it. But also, God is in one sense forcing us to see what he sees, at which point that helps us then uh, to be able to respond as he responds or to have our hearts shaped as his heart is. Uh, that God was. Uh, was absolutely devastated in one sense, that God did not want his people to live in this darkness, and therefore he continued his plan to bring the light. 
And so uh, even as we read texts like these that are disturbing, uh, they point us back to God. And, and in that sense, they are blessings uh, because they're a mirror, right? This is who we can be whenever we do not follow God as our king. Yeah, that's an important point that this story is not put down to be like, go therefore and do likewise. Right. Um, I too, like you, take some comfort in the fact that this is an event like sexual violence. That's an unfortunate part of this world, but God says, I'm not going to let it slip by in this case, unnoticed, unmarked, right? Yeah. It is something that requires attention, requires an answer, even a very bloody and violent answer as the Benjamites are punished. So, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, difficult passage. I think it does serve a function in the story, though, and helps us uh, mm -hmm. drive to many of these good theological conclusions. So thank you for uh, jumping in and adding that there, Tim. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, well, thank you, Brian. And, uh, and listeners, uh, I know for Brian and I, we, we so enjoy the question and answer. This is, this is, in one sense, what we love to do every day, to read the Bible. Brian, I loved how you said it, to, to come to the Bible and not necessarily to have every uh, question answered perfectly, but as an invitation to learn and to grow and ultimately to trust. And so we hope it's been beneficial to you. Uh, and we want to invite you. Uh, to share our content, like it, uh, let people know about it. We'd love for this uh, community to grow. And, and our heartbeat is for people, again, to come to know and love the Lord through his word uh, and through the Bible, through the Old Testament in particular. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Dr. Brian, thank you for joining me today. And uh, friends, until next time, stay cool and stay old.